Welcome to the Inspiring Minds Podcast, hosted by Justin Starbird and presented by the Edison Awards. Listen as Justin talks with innovators and pioneers that are changing the world around us. True modern-day Thomas Edison's walking among us. Guests will answer the most difficult of questions facing startups, established brands, and folks with great ideas that are just getting started. Learn how these amazing innovators have gone from concept to commercialization and what it took to get there. Take notes as they share with Justin how they navigated through research, development, and in true Thomas Edison fashion, marketed and sold their newfound innovations. You're listening to the Inspiring Minds Podcast. Welcome back to this episode of Inspiring Minds. My name is Justin Starbird, and I'm excited today because I have an old friend from uh, from several Edison Awards ago that has joined us today from Arrow Electronics. I have Joe Varengia, the Corporate Social Responsibility Director, and a colleague of his, uh, Vic Parth, Director of Product and Innovation at Aero Electronics as well, and, and also um, founder of Hyperloop that, that was born out of MIT. So gentlemen, welcome to Inspiring Minds. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Justin. Glad to be here. Justin, it's good to talk to you again. Joe, you know, we, we talked about this project uh, for, for quite a while, you know, both uh, from the, uh, the podcast itself. I told you as soon as um, I had one of these, we would have you and the team on. <laughs> so I'm so, so glad to, uh, to have, uh, have, you, have you on today. Oh, well, it's, it's great. I, I think that, you know, we have so many shared interests between Arrow and uh, uh, um, your work and, and the Edison Awards, uh, really, you know, this entire intersection of technology and innovation and, uh, and, and how it helps, helps make people's lives better, how, how it contributes to progress, how it sort of kicks open new doors. Uh, and uh, it's just, it's exciting. And this particular one, um, you know, previous previous Edison conversations and competitions we've had, you know, the innovations that we've been involved in were very specific and very, were, were really at the very human level because they were, you know, innovations about medicine, medical delivery. Uh, this time around, you know, what Vic, what Vic captained and led to great success um, is really nothing short of a transportation revolution and the kind of infrastructure change that we need. So tell me a little bit about that, Vic. You know, I, Joe had alerted me to it, um, it probably just after Arrow became involved or, or told me, well, Joe, I got to be fair. You didn't tell me exactly what it is. You said something was coming and that next year you were going to have this thing. And, and this is what it was, right? And so um, I got a little bit of a heads up about how you know, pioneering it, it was and it is. So Vic, tell me a little bit about you know, the, the project. Yeah, so I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a history. So um, before I met Joe, you know, uh, you might have heard of uh, the whole Hyperloop program. Um, it's something that was started by Elon Musk in 2015. And uh, I was actually a graduate student in Texas at the time. And we were building a very, very early, early prototype of 
a potential hovercraft design that would go in the Hyperloop. And what the Hyperloop is, is a, is a high speed transport system that functions either, you know, low pr uh, pressure environment. And the whole purpose of that was to take you from, let's say, LA to San Francisco in 30 minutes or from New York to Boston in about 30 minutes. And so this idea came out through Elon Musk and SpaceX and, 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 and that's in an area of, of, uh, of uh, brainstorming. And essentially over several years, um, I had sort of uh, brought together some folks that I knew in graduate schools and, and research and we started building these prototypes. And it wasn't until I got to MIT when we really started to come to a, a design where we thought it could be a, a really scalable version of what we were trying to make from the very beginning. And so essentially what we did this past year, we, we built the first uh, autonomous electric hovercraft for the Hyperloop program. And this was a work that was over four years of research and development, but it culminated to this past year when we worked closely with companies like Arrow and other sponsors to really build uh, uh, the future, what a, a, a hovercraft design could look like for the Hyperloop. And if you if you think about the Hyperloop, it's it's a it's a very cool piece of technology. But one of the things that I've I've learned is that you know you can't um, really uh, try to take conventional means of transportation and just stuff it inside the vacuum tube. The whole purpose is to make something that's efficient and that it works and it's scalable. And so if you look at the modern day mag maglev trains, right? So they function off of permanent magnets or uh, magnetic levitation um, to, to travel at 300, 400 miles an hour. Um, these are quite expensive, not because of the magnets themselves, but also because the track requirements that it takes to build such a, a, a system. And so one of the things that we wanted to explore uh, this past year uh, was looking at alternative ways of, of levitation. And so we basically experimented with uh, air as like a mode of, of levitation. And we basically built an entire electric vehicle and, um, and uh, autonomous navigation system that was built all together into one hovercraft. And then that's where we're really uh, kind of brought to uh, design and uh, this, this prototype. And we brought it to SpaceX actually about a, a year ago at this time uh, to demonstrate it at SpaceX headquarters. And so, um, yeah, and so with, with, with help from Joe and, and Arrow, we were able to uh, you know, build this prototype, um, test it, and we actually uh, placed first in the US um, for, for the competition. I heard all about it. And, and I heard in order to place first, um, you had a last minute major, major issue that oh, popped yeah. up. Um, <laughs> can you, can you, I, I, I don't know if that's public or you want oh, to no, share no, it. But... I, no, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's something that if you look at the news too, you can read about it on MIT news. Um, it, it was actually, uh, it was nearly well, devastating. Right? Yeah, it was devastating. Yeah. Basically, um, you know, towards three weeks before we were had to fly out the vehicle to SpaceX, um, essentially, um, the battery pack that uh, we built, um, we had to do some early testing on it because the electric motor was built and then we had to do some testing to, to make sure it, it worked on the track that we built. Um, and so we basically had to, uh, we, we put like an early, early prototype together to do that testing and unfortunately what happened was that during one of the tests, um, the, the insulation on the battery pack essentially tore and that that essentially shorted with the some parts of the chassis so you can imagine like shorting a battery but it's shorting like a 400 volt battery and so that caused an immediate fire and so you know fires you know are dangerous um they're common in 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 the space of electric vehicles and they happen but at the same time it was since we were sort of a, this is the first time that we had seen this it was a very devastating for us because 
you know, uh, you know, we only had three weeks to kind of like go to the competition. So our entire vehicle essentially burned down. I mean, you can imagine your, the work you've done over years and years of research is kind of burning down weeks before it's supposed to be displayed. Right. And so, um, basically we, you know, the whole thing burned down the chassis, the, 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 the pneumatic system, the, the levitation system, the battery system, the electronics. It all just melted essentially. Yeah, huh? it, it, basically just gone yeah and i think you know i remember i remember sitting in in the hallway it was in it was right underneath the mit dome where uh, we had to evacuate the entire building and um you know it was just a sad moment because you know like we, we had put so much time and effort into this to to make it happen but um you know we thought this wouldn't happen and we, I mean, we wouldn't be able to go to the competition and then uh you know the next day you know we came to the chalkboards this is really where i think the mit spirit came in i think we had about 20 of us all of us uh, mechanical engineers you know um aerospace engineers electrical engineers we gathered in a small classroom with a chalkboard and said to start literally start drawing out on, on a calendar okay we had three weeks left 21 days how are we going to make this happen and we basically started redesigning the entire vehicle the next three days and then you know day and night day and night we spent time and it took turns and then within a week we had designed a new chassis we had sourced a new chassis component and within two weeks we built a pneumatics frame and within three weeks we built a battery and we basically we put the entire vehicle together all brand new and we shipped it on time to spacex well isn't that one of the things that you always ask is you know once you have this thing can you recreate it and uh so you know one you must have kept great notes but then two I would imagine that you probably were able to apply what you'd already learned in some of the existing design or, or original design and, um, and improve upon it, no? Oh yeah, and I think it turned out that this new design was even better than the previous design. I mean, we had, we had way more mechanical uh, structure that, that held the pieces together properly. We had much more robust uh, packaging systems that we integrated to the battery pack. I mean, everything was just better overall. I mean, the vehicle itself just looked like you can just ride it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was great. That's, a, that's um, incredible. And, ju and Justin, I mean, nobody wants a fire, right? Right. Let's, let's, let's be honest. But, you know, the, one of the reasons why I was uh, so intent on uh, applying for an Edison Award and, and, and bringing this to your attention was was this fire has has in its own way parallels to Thomas Edison's own life. And I felt that there was just this great synchronicity between the Hyperloop project and Edison himself. His laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey had a catastrophic fire in 1914. Um, and he lost more than half of his operation and his inventions. Uh, he lost 10 buildings. Uh, and of course the scale of his fire was much greater, but you know, you can see the parallels and he rebuilt uh, and he saw it as an opportunity to get better. Uh, and in his words, uh, the quote that I, I read was, well, we got rid of a lot of rubbish. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that anything before that Vic and the team were doing was rubbish, but I just, the parallel just struck me so, so clearly that uh, they responded so well. Um, and, you know, we had been helping them and supporting them before at Arrow, uh, but this was, this was the opportunity and this was the time where, um, well, nobody ever thought about quitting. Uh, right. Everybody rolled up their sleeves and, uh, you know, we had to source everything again. They had to build it again. Uh, they had to do it in a time period where when he talks about having about 
you know, a little less than a month before the competition. They're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the competition is in Hawthorne, California. It has to ship 3,000 miles on a truck. So you need, the, you need a week to get it there. So the time deadline after the fire was even shorter. Yeah. I, you know, I remember you calling me and telling me, because, I mean, it was, uh, it was actually in the midst of, if I remember correctly, it was actually in the midst of when we were going, we were going through the nomination period. So it by no means was finished um, when, you, uh, when you and I engaged Joe. Um, to to start talking about it as a submission, and so I just I remember the you know the near devastation in your voice as well because you know you, you this is something that uh, for Arrow I mean if I remember correctly you've you know been part of for for quite some time and and these are projects that that you actively look for and and kind of take ownership of of within Arrow to shepherd them through some of these things, right? So, you know, tell us a little bit about how that program has worked. I mean, before it was the Solar Suitcase, um, I know of of others that you've done similar things with, you know, where does that fall? Because it's not necessarily like these things are going to be out on shelves, you know, next fall for, you know, launch going into, going into the holidays. Sure. Well, our, uh, you know, at Arrow, we don't actually make anything ourselves. All of our work is for customers on their technologies. And, and our role uh, has grown over the decades to be not just the supplier of components, sort of the world's supermarket for electronic parts, but you know, we, we work on every phase now of our customers' uh, products and services and solutions. Uh, and the, Nobody really does it all by themselves anymore. Uh, so it just it depends on what makes sense for the customer, what they need. Uh, and so we try, and so in my CSR program, uh, you know, rather than simply making financial donations, I think it's a lot more effective, you know, if we find really cool innovation projects that have the, have the, the potential to change the world uh, and make our lives better, and, and apply the power of the entire company. The check that I can write is comparatively small compared to the needs, but if I'm able to harness all the different parts of Arrow and all the different things that we do, um, then, then we can really make a considerable difference. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in this case, certainly we support, we've supplied some financial support as a conventional sponsor. Um, and that's, you know, you see the logo on the side and all that. Uh, but really, it was the opportunity to help Vic and his team um, with that transition from the concept of Hyperloop 2 uh, and, the technical, and, the, and the technical demonstration that they were trying to achieve with air levitation uh, and turn that into, you know, a scale model that works at hundreds of miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we treated them like a customer, even though they weren't paying us. And so they got, they had access to all the expertise and all the services of Arrow across the company. Uh, so, it, I mean, from um, analyzing, engineering their bill of materials uh, to what is out there in the vast world of components, sourcing them, um, uh, other engineering services, transportation, distribution, uh, helping 
helping them with their team organization and support and marketing. Um, you know, it was really the full menu. Mm-hmm. Nick, what, what was that like to work with Joe and the team and have that support? How did that, you know, translate into, you know, tangible, well, success? I mean, you won the competition. So how did that, how did that translate for you? One of the things that with these kind of projects, right? I mean, there, there's no, um, you know, as, as an MIT student, you really take for granted uh, the resources you have. At the same time, it's like uh, people don't people don't really see how much value industry has to kind of um, bring into that sector. And right? I think this is really where where Joe was talking about, where the value of Arrow in the industry and like their their broad reach and like their the ability to just get thing get us moving fast. I mean, uh, in terms of transportation logistics, is a huge thing that we we just underestimated because, you know, Joe's right, moving a pod that weighs almost a ton from Boston to California in, in, in less than a week. I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to do. And so, um, and so, you know, that's one part of that. And the other thing is sort of, uh, you know, going back to the technology, right? When you're looking at like pushing innovation forward, we were the first team to demonstrate a fully autonomous electric hovercraft. I mean, this is something that even if you read the original white paper that Elon Musk wrote, it actually talks about air levitation in that 2015 paper, but no one has really been able to do that until we demonstrated that prototype at SpaceX last August. I think that's what's great is that, you know, we're pushing forward actual technology that, that is critical to the future of transportation. And also we're doing it partnering with university and industry together. And that's what's beautiful about it to me. Well, I got to believe that, you know, when you think about education sector and then a corporate sector, neither one of them ever, you know, strike the chord and say, move fast, make quick decisions and see results immediately. Yet you're able to do that in, in not just the short time of the competition relative to the length of time that that it was open but but really then being able to redo it in three weeks and then add a week for shipping and then have a competition i mean that speaks volumes of uh you know being able to you know adjust on the fly you know joe how have you created a culture where like that's okay within a big corporation well on a business basis um although maybe we don't encounter a lot of fires, uh, you know, things like this happen all the time. Uh, you know, that, that suddenly, you know, either problems erupt or great opportunities erupt and it has to happen now. And so that's, uh, that's common. I think in this case though, uh, you know, the, the, company, the company really rallies around uh, our CSR technology projects, they're really motivational. Uh, they're really inspiring. Uh, and, they, and they represent to our 20,000 employees uh, what, you know, what innovation means and, uh, and where we fit in that world. And so uh, you, you never really know at Arrow when Joe's going to tap you on the shoulder. The CSR guy comes down the hall and says, I need a favor and I need it now. Uh, and and they always they always drop what they're doing and respond. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's a chance to be involved. It's a ch- it's exciting. It's a chance to make a difference. And you know they did all this with confidence in the team. But nobody 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 can guarantee a victory. Um, so it wasn't as though 
that that was going to be part of the outcome. So when we found out that they won the Innovation Award uh, and they placed so well in the competition, um, you know, it was it was the icing on the cake, but uh, everybody was just thrilled. Yeah, that's uh, that's so neat to to hear, though, and to 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 know that that's part of the culture that you that, that's there. Um, you know, what are some of the ways in which you know you you take those uh, stories too and and push them out because sure. that's got to have an impact on on um, leadership as well and and you know, kind of be a culmination of, of all of the different components within Arrow to, you know, create um, future successful products. It, it's, been, it's been a remarkable experience for me personally. Uh, and certainly I think it's been, uh, I think it's made a difference for the company that, that we have these, we have this approach to CSR and we have these humanitarian technology project projects and these innovation demonstrations like Hyperloop 2 because you know Arrow is a Arrow is a big company you know 20,000 people you know we operate in 95 countries and literally if it if electricity runs through it we're involved in it somehow it's not like we make one thing and sell it or one suite of products that we're known for. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so varied that it's, that it's difficult to describe. And despite our size, we can be on a business unit basis. We can be very niched. Uh, we can be very slotted in particular uh, markets and silos. These projects have the way not only to inspire people, but to give our company an overall identity. Uh, that say, oh, you're the company that does the SAM car, the, the disabled driver drives with his head, or you do the solar suitcase, or now, you know, you were involved in Hyperloop. And so it's too hard and it takes too long to describe everything that we do. These company, these, these projects uh, tend to act as, as, as really, uh, uh, inspirational examples of how we do business and what our values are. Uh, and that, uh, that's great internally. And it also, it also really makes a difference in terms of doing business. You know, that, that's such a good point. And, and um, you know, to be known for some of the inspirational products it can only, it can only serve to um, improve the market cap for the other things that you go through. Right. So, uh, and and create. So how do well, you take? Go ahead. Well, it 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 does. Um, I think the way that I like to to describe it is this kind of work and these kind of uh, collaborations, like with the MIT Hyperloop Two, they're great conversation starters. Uh, and and uh, I can't close any deals. They don't let me do that. Uh, but. But we can we can start a lot of really interesting new conversations, mm -hmm. and that I think is the, uh, in addition to simply you know the humanitarian impact that we can have, that's the that's part of the business ROI. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you take these projects and then 
you know, I guess they've got, a, to your point, their inspiration, but then, you know, where, where you're, you have your own R&D as well. How do you take those, you know, concepts and, and turn them into commercialized products and successes? Well, in my particular case, uh, you know, the, we all, well, in this, you know, we, we make stories out of, out of the, out of the, the projects and sponsorships that we have so that we can tell those stories to others on arrow platforms and other platforms and new in, in the news media. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can get that out there. Uh, one of the things that I'm really pursuing now uh, is, is to, is to look for uh, humanitarian organizations, nonprofits, and even some humanitarian inspired startups that have their own technologies that, you know, rather than us coming up with the idea, we're best when we make other people's ideas into reality and scale them into uh, market ready products. Mm -hmm. And so there are plenty of organizations out there uh, in startups that have, you know, ideas that have real humanitarian value and, and really, really advanced technology. Uh, and by, and I think that, you know, my job is to sort of act as that concierge inside Arrow um, and, and try to make, and try to apply our services to a select number of them. I can't do a lot of them, but I can do a few of them. Uh, but really then the next step, and hopefully pretty quickly, is to turn them from CSR beneficiaries and turn them into real customers because that's where the power of the relationship lies. Um, you know, we don't, you know, we make, we make money when our customers grow and need to buy more of what we offer. We don't take, we're not, we don't share in their IP. We don't take an equity stake in their companies. So our growth depends on their growth. Sure. Uh, and I think that, but, we, but when you're looking at some of these technologies, um, you know, for humanitarian use, there's need around the world. There's actually a market there. So whether you're talking about, uh, you know, something like the solar suitcase, which was for, you know, remote medical clinics around the world, well, there's a lot of those and they can also be used in natural disaster systems because they're solar, solar powered. They don't rely on the grid. So when the grid goes down in a hurricane or an earthquake, the solar suitcase is going to work. And so there's disaster relief applications. And, uh, you know, you know, we have, we have interest from people who are doing things like, you know, uh, cheaper and simplified earthquake uh, uh, seismic monitoring and warning systems, great humanitarian value there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and, and I think that we can rapidly flip those from CSR beneficiaries to real customers. I, absolutely. And, and I just think, um, you know, to this end with, with Hyperloop too, uh, you know, there's a you know, future application that would li literally change our supply chain and, uh, on a tent, right? It would, it, so Vic, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's next for, for your team. And, you know, I know, I know now you, you've come on um, to Arrow uh, as well, but you know, what's next for, for you and the Hyperloop 2 team? 
So that's a great question. So the thing is, the, the potential is always there. Um, one of the things that we discovered in, in sort of the research that we did on this on the Hyperloop work is that with uh, the, the weight that you can carry, you would, for one of our vehicles, you can carry about 12 to 20,000 pounds of weight. And just thinking about that from a, a freight transport perspective is a huge benefit, I think, to moving goods around the country. And I think if you look at how much traffic is being held up on the roads due to um, you know, trucks, uh, you know, and moving things from point A to point B, if you can sort of automate that and bring that, make that easier for someone to move goods in a more, uh, um, I guess, uh, uh, autonomous fashion is, is definitely, there's a, there's a lot of potential there. And so um, that's one thing that we were looking at while we we're building this prototype and, you know, using as like a, a freight vehicle even. And I think another thing is sort of, you know, even on, on services, you know, you have a lot of wear and tear, uh, you know, with, with sort of like the air, air uh, levitation that we were building, there, there really isn't much wear and tear at all in the service. And so you can sort of imagine this even being used within factory floors or manufacturing environments to move goods from from point A to point B. And so that's sort of what we were looking at. And I think, you know, through our conversations in our network, you know, we, we found a, um, in a like a pilot program um, at, uh, in New York City, there's a place called the New Lab. And so, uh, you know, uh, with support from Arrow, we, we, we brought our vehicle to New Lab, which is a, a really cool incubator for these kind of uh, ideas and, and new startups that are growing in that space. And so our goal is to kind of explore to see, is there potential for uh, taking what we created at MIT um, and basically commercializing that through uh, these sort of, uh, um, you know, more, more um, I would say, scalable infrastructures. And so the place in New York City was actually in the Brooklyn Naval Yard where they, where they used to make uh, many of the, the, the carrier ships. Uh, and one of the, many of the earliest um, kind of technologies that were used uh, were kind of implemented back in, in, that, in that area. And so it was interesting that we kind of, kind of uh, closed the circle in a bit, kind of bringing back our vehicle to that location and showing what we could do in that space. And I think um, what we hope to do eventually is kind of, we wanna, we're currently you know, building a small display for the, for the Hyperloop 2 vehicle. And we're actually gonna be taking it to Denver to, for a little showcase. And then we wanna kind of see where, where, what people think about it and kind of open up more dialogues and the potential of this being a future uh, transport system. You know, maybe it'll start with freight at first and then it'll go into maybe uh, people movement later. And where would Arrow play a role in that future, Joe? Well, I think that, uh, you know, time will tell. And obviously, uh, you know, we're on a commercial basis, uh, Arrow would, uh, would is uh, supplying the production of Hyperloop 2 vehicles. Joe, where does uh, where does Arrow play a role in that? Arrow's role is dependent on on where the technology and where the market goes for what Vic described. I think you know obviously uh, whomever builds commercial Hyperloop vehicles, you know we have the potential to uh, help them with design, supply, and manufacturing them. Uh, beyond that, though, the, uh, the 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 infrastructure and the network in which it can be applied, I think that's going to have to be developed and built as well, and that's going to have to be smart. I think one of the great things about 
the design on Vic's team is that uh, it's, it's levitation and propulsion, the way it works is not dependent on a fixed track. Uh, you certainly need a right of way, right? You're not gonna have these vehicles rocketing down any old street, I suppose, but, but, but you, don't need, you don't need the kind of dedicated path. You need a flat, smooth surface. Uh, and so that's why, as Vic said, it could go into an awful lot of different settings. Um, but there's tremendous amounts of opportunity, not only in the production of the vehicles, but also in the environments that it works in, in, uh, in the guidance, in the data collection, and the analytics. Uh, I just think that there's an awful lot there. And, you know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. Uh, when I first was exposed to this project, what got me really excited about it was the fact that, you know, in my entire lifetime, you know, everything's been pretty much the same. Um, and, you know, jet airplanes were introduced in the late 50s and commercially, and we're going about as fast as we always have. Um, and trains are trains and trucks are trucks. And I think that this really represents to me uh, a way that we can get a whole lot faster and a whole lot better. Um, and, I, and I think that what we were really attracted to with Hyperloop 2 is how, how much more versatile, versatile and applicable this approach is. And if I could add to that real quick, I think the idea of this interconnectedness, I think imagine imagine each vehicle being its own IoT node, right? And if you think about it from that perspective as a network, um, a network of these vehicles working in, in synchronous you know, together to make sure that things are safe and all requires a, a lot of uh, a work in the space of, um, you know, autonomous navigation, um, you know, controls, you know, electronics, you know, uh, you know, sensing. So these are all areas that, you know, that needs uh, to be carefully thought out and vetted as you're building such an infrastructure, right? And so it's both on the vehicle side and on the net and on the actual uh, um, track side. And so, you know, again, you don't need a hyperloop, you don't need a tube for this to go through, it can just be a flat surface, but at the same time, you want to be, you want this transport system to be as smart as possible. Right. I, and uh, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it is, um, you know, a traveling node, you know, going down and being a sensor for, you know, what's coming behind it and what's in, what's in front of it. Um, <clears throat> I think that our infrastructure may not be set up for that today, but it's, it's certainly trending that way. And the more, you know, we can, we can push it in that direction. So do you see that this becomes a viable solution or do you see that components of it become the solution and that's what makes the change? So, you know, my dream is to, you know, one day kind of have our own Hyperloop in, in, in the U.S. I think um, that's definitely would be cool to be able to go from Boston to New York in 30 minutes, right? And same time, you have all this right away issues. Like, you know, this is why Elon Musk has been going underground right now with the boring company um, and going above ground. Um, so Which, by the way, I'm a supporter of. I have the uh, not a flamethrower <laughs> as a result of that. <laughs> So, you know, I don't know if you know, I just got an email from, from his team uh, like last week about a new, new uh, uh, 
thing that they want to build in, in, at LA around the boring tunnels. And so, um, you know, you know, I, I know, I know the team pretty well, you know, we kind of stay in regular contact, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see where, where they're taking the technology for. I mean, the, the main purpose of the boring company is to, to, to beat the snail, right? So how do you, how do you dig faster and, and go faster underground? And I think traditionally they're, they're changing the whole model of the, the tunneling sector. I think that's a whole untapped uh, potential. But going back to your question, though, I think, you know, um, I think first thing would be the levitation, like understanding how can we uh, take the levitation system that we built and, and really kind of scale that up. Um, and second, I would say, you know, what is what does it look like to have multiple of these vehicles on the same network? I mean, I think, imagine if you're moving goods, like uh, from point A to point B, um, you know, what, what does that process look like? And he moving heavy goods is a, it's different from moving, you know, stuff in, in your UPS or Amazon uh, delivery, right? It's, it's much different of a, of, a, of a problem set you're looking at. And so I think those are the key areas I would start looking at from a commercializable perspective. Jessica, could I, could I yeah. weigh in on that for a minute? Sure. Uh, and this isn't anything that Vic and I have discussed before. So, uh, so you know, we'll we'll see we'll see if he calls me afterwards and yells at me. But uh, you know, I, this reminds me of when I worked in renewable energy. I was at the National Renewable Energy Lab for several years, and the and the thing about it uh, was that at least by the time I got there, and of course, you know, this may be continue to be early days for or Hyperloop technology. But by the time I got to the Renewable Energy Lab, the science of renewable energy was pretty well established. You know, there, were, there continued to be continual incremental gains. But at that time, why, wasn't, why weren't renewables um, everywhere uh, in, in our everyday lives? And, it's, and it, was, it was due to, uh, it wasn't because of the science. It was due to uh, it was due to markets and it was due to policy. And, and so I think that while we are talking about the application of this type of innovation, you know, throughout society and the way that we would recognize, it might be that the earlier opportunity is in more confined commercial settings where, uh, you know, it can be applied uh, in, you know, inside inside boundaries and it can be demonstrated that way because you know it's just it's just really hard to do everything you know across 50 state jurisdictions uh, so I I don't know what the path forward is uh, but I have I have a feeling that some uh, uh, that some really cool uh, commercial application, might be the first step. I hope so. I think I think um, that gives us all hope, right? I think that's something that, you know, as we think about the work that you've done, you know, Vic, and with your team and, and the support that you've given with your team, Joe, I think that's um, that's what we hope for, right, is, is that there's applications and some applicability to, uh, you know, both what we have, but also change what we have to make it better and more efficient. And, you know, I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to, uh, you know, see this, recognize it, and have you part of the Edison Awards. Joe, I know you've been a longtime supporter, but Vic, uh, you know, we're looking forward to, you know, what comes next from this, from your team, um, that commercial viability, and, and hopefully future Edison Award nominations, right? 
I hope so. No, thank you, uh, Joe and Justin. It's really, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. I think, I think one thing that I keep looking back is there's so many technologies like, you know, Joe mentioned that have, have come out to, uh, you know, technology wise, they're really, they, they work, right. And for example, if you look at the, um, you know, the, in, in the 1870s, there was the, one of the earliest pneumatic transits underneath New York city called the beach pneumatic transit. And I think one of the earliest demonstrations of, of a subway line running on pneumatic power, but it basically it got shut down because of politics. And I think my hope is that no matter what technology we make, that policy also comes with that because that's so important for our technology to, to be successful. Yeah, that's a, that's a topic for a whole nother podcast. Well, right? <laughs> Justin, it is, but I, I want to, I want to thank you because, you know, the, the, the Edison badge, you know, winning is exciting, but ha being able to carry that badge going forward is, is a unique validation. And, and, I, I have to I have to admit that I really I really wanted it for this project. I felt like I felt like Vic and his team deserved it, but I think it will be it's carrying that badge is is the kind of seal of approval that a new technology like this uh, needs going forward. Uh, and and you know we're we're grateful for it. Well, thank you both for for joining me today. It's been um, uh, a great discussion, and I hope to have you guys on again soon. Great. We'll be here. All right. All right. This has been the latest episode of Inspiring Minds. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. You have been listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast presented by the Edison Awards. On behalf of our guest today and host, Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. Please share your feedback on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Edison Awards. If you have a great guest idea or want to share your inspiring story, please email Justin at justin at edisonawards.com for consideration. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast.